Good morning and Merry Christmas. Everybody doing well? You look good. Tell your neighbor they look better this week than last week. Yeah, it's the truth. Hey, thanks for being with us. I want to welcome the campuses, Mobile, Foley, Baymanette, and the men at Holman. Thanks so much for being with us this weekend. You know, we're in a series. I'm going to wrap it up this weekend, Reclaiming Christmas. And if you remember in the first one, we talked about a table and the presence, the place set at the table. And then last weekend, we talked about, of course, valleys, mountains, edges, and glory. And we talked and identified some glory moments like Merry Christmas, Gulf Coast. Um, this weekend, you know, almost 80 people giving their lives to Christ at our Christmas production. So those were glory moments. So here's what I want to show you. Um, I, I want to show you a story that uh, God put together. There's no way we could have made this happen. So let me see if I can do it. It's the story of the table and the glory. After that first weekend, we have a family in our church, the Weindorfs, they called and said, hey, we have a table that we would like to give to someone, a nice wooden table. We said, thank you. We'll, we'll, we'll see what we can do and find out, find someone. And then let's go to the other extreme. Let's go to an elementary school in Pritchard to a teacher that we don't know, and her name is Samantha. And she has a, a lesson with her students, writing. And so a little girl writes this, and you'll see a picture of this letter in a minute. I'm so excited about Christmas, I really, really want a family table. So the teacher questioned her and found out they didn't have a table, and most of the time they're eating on the floor. So this teacher, Samantha, calls her mom in Fort Payne, Alabama, and is telling her the story. Her mom works at the post office. Her mom tells a friend who comes in the post office about the story. This lady says, you know, I watch online a church called City Hope. And the pastor, the, he, he talked about a table and a sermon just last week, and maybe you should contact them for help. So the mother responds back to the teacher, Samantha, and gives her the message. Samantha says, oh, I know about that church because one of our teachers, Letha, has resigned here, and she's going to work at that church as our children's coordinator at the Mobile campus. I'll tell her about this. She tells Letha. Letha calls the office. We go back to the Weindorfs and say, hey, here's the story. You still have the table. Oh, yes, we'd love to give the table. And when they heard the story, they found out there's three children in the house, and we want to buy Christmas gifts for all the children. So yesterday, at 2 o'clock, there was a glory moment. Because this little girl that you'll see in a minute, she has an aunt. And this aunt let us in their home at 1 o'clock. Because the mother and the three children were in Atmore visiting the dad at prison. 
So our guys go in at 1 o'clock and take in the table. And then we have a lady in our church who's the best cook in the whole world. If you don't know Miss Verner, she will make you fat. <laughs> she heard about it, and she said, I want to cook them a meal. So Miss Verner cooks an incredible Christmas meal. So I'll let you watch the video. For this precious lady that made this food for us. For this precious lady that made the food for us. In your name we pray. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 <laughs> I would say that little girl's faith in God just went off the chart and you know what I said it God set this up God likes to show up and show off sometimes and he wanted you to see how generosity is so active and he will put the people in the right place at the right time to make things work for the prayers of little children see here's the great part about that God orchestrated all that but we get to be part of it. And that's what makes it so exciting about being a Christian. It's, what just, it's, just, it's just like worth it all. It's just incredible. So in closing this series, we've talked about the table and we've talked about valleys, mountains, edges, and glory. This week I want to talk about peace in the middle of terror. And I'm literally going to speak to you out of Isaiah 9. If you want to turn to Isaiah 9, and then I'll refer to Romans 8 in a few minutes. You know the scripture. At the end of Isaiah 9, he says, he, he says the Prince of Peace. Now, I'm going to be very honest and open with you in this message. I, I'm not sure how, how you feel about life right now, but the last few weeks, maybe the last month, it just feels that in our life today, there seems to be a constant drip of bad news every day. And it's violent. It's murder. It's not hopeful. I want you to understand that the prophet Isaiah was not living in some kind of paradise when he received this prophetic word. He was living in a world controlled then by terrorist movements, and he's prophesying, unknown to him at the time, about a baby called Jesus that would be born in a country that was controlled by a terrorist organization. In fact, this terrorist organization is probably the most violent in the history of mankind. We call it the Roman Empire. 
The Roman Empire was the most notorious, most violent terrorist organization in the history of the world. They dominated by force, by violence, and murder. And that was the way they controlled the population. The Romans did a lot of great things, but they were terrorists. So here's Isaiah. He's prophesying about the Prince of Peace, why he himself is living in a world controlled by terrorist organizations. He has no idea that he's prophesying about the arrival of a baby that would be born in the outskirts, uh, no man's land of Israel in the time where they're dominated by a murderous terrorist group. And understand, the Bible still speaks to us today. And the, those who think maybe the Bible's archaic or it's outdated, doesn't speak to us today, th this passage we're going to read in a moment it could have been written in December of 2015 and would have made perfect sense to those of us reading it. So I want to take this verse and I want to break it down line by line. Here's the first part, Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. A son is given. God's only son is given. How many of you know that's a big deal? I mean, it's one thing to send you a gift from Amazon. It's another thing... For me to send you my child and there are times where we like to send them but <laughs> that's a big gift the game just changed have you ever been out gifted by someone in the family you feel bad wish you had a better gift a real gift you, you can't out gift God he's, he's already out given us you can't repay him all we can do is receive his son and worship him well, the verse goes on. The next part says, and the government will be upon his shoulder. Now, I'm going to get into that in detail in a minute, but most of us think oh, like the government of the country. That's not what it means. I'll show you what it, in a minute. The, the, Isaiah is talking about Jesus, but you see it's going to be another 12, 1,500 years before Jesus is going to make his appearance as a baby. And, 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 but then he says, he goes on in the verse and says, but he's going to be called. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So why did the Prince of Peace come? The guy's writing about it under terror, in terror. He's coming to be born in a country that's under terror. You see, he came because our total well-being was important enough for him that if we understand that if we miss the king's peace, we have missed this incredible gift because this gift is his gift. It's his gift, and, 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 and it's, it's free. He said in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. Well, that's nice. No, he, he goes on, he says, my peace not just peace. I'm leaving you my peace, not as the world gives do I give. Let your heart not be troubled, neither let it be afraid. I leave my special gift, my peace. You know, today, peace is a rare commodity. And the real re reason we must, most people, I mean, the bottom line is most people go to church to find peace or a deep rest inside, and peace is rare and it's valuable today. Peace is the highest commodity on the earth. And I'll prove it to you. Since, since 3600 B.C., there have only been 292 years of peace. There have been over 14,000 wars and conflicts, and over 3.6 billion people have died in those conflicts. And since 9-11, more people go to church in America than before, and they're still trying to find hope, which is evidence that they're missing peace. The central issue of America is peace. That's the central issue. 
because we think about the terrorist attack. We think, we think about the stock market crash, the recession, suicide bombers, nuclear bombs, killings in schools and malls and on the highways. And then if you just look at the epidemic of addictive behavior patterns, and they're getting worse and worse and worse in our culture. Why? Because the world we live in offers circumstances or chemistry for peace. Your world says, oh, you want peace? Well, get the circumstances right. Get the right house, the right job, and get the right person and this and this and the circumstances. Or get to the right chemistry. Take the right drug. Take, take the right pill. But you see, you can't have peace without the prince. His peace is free because he gave himself. And, and listen, please listen. Peace from God isn't the absence of war. Peace from God isn't the absence of terrorists or disease. It is the presence of the king. The presence of the king at the table of your house. The presence of the king at the table of your heart. His peace gives you peace in the middle of a war. His peace can give, you, it can give you peace in terrorism and disease and regardless of the circumstances because his peace is abiding peace. To experience the peace Jesus left us, he has to be our king. And we'll never know God's power and peace until we acknowledge him. Well, how do we do that? Well, Isaiah said, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. What it means is as soon as we put the authority of our lives the authority that's on our shoulders, as soon as we put that on his shoulders, then we can recognize him for who he really is. Once I take my authority that I have on this earth and I put it on his shoulder, then and only then can I recognize that he is a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and the prince of peace. Because you see, if you're not doing that, here, here's what you're doing. You're kind of rebelling against God's plan. Because what he wants is he wants your life. He wants your authority. He wants you to place that on his shoulders. And when you're in rebellion with that and not doing it, you're missing out on all of the attributes of God. And you're going to miss out on the Prince of Peace that should be inside of you. The Prince of Peace in you, here's what it means. It means you experience his peace that passes comprehension. And, and, and the next verse, I don't want to put it on the screen, but he, uh, Isaiah goes on to say, of the increase of his government and his peace, there will be no end. As you constantly, day in and day out, increase giving him your government, your life to him, the, his peace, there's no end to it. It, it. There's not a season for it. It never stops. So the more of his government you allow in your life, the more peace you have. And it's a decision that you have to make every single day. It's not a one-time deal. It's daily. I, I take the authority on my shoulders and I put it on yours daily. The peace of God passes comprehension, Paul said in Philippians. So, it, it, so what I need to do, I need to guard my heart and my mind because it's not like human peace. See, we always have to evaluate because we're human. We live in a natural world. So what is human peace? It, it's, it's different. What well, human peace is fragile and circumstantial. The peace of God is is trans-circumstantial and powerful. So in the worst circumstances, you can feel overwhelming peace in the worst situation. And, and, and security can be right there inside of you in your hands because the king, he can handle all this. It's, it's, it's what he does. 
And when everything is going wrong and you lack everything you need to have in life, do you, have you turned everything over to him? Or are you still trying to carry out your authority? If so, you're missing his. When you take his authority, watch, you don't have to live in fear. When you have transferred your authority and put it on his shoulders, you, you don't have to live in fear anymore. This weekend we've talked about the story and how the story begins, and the Bible is a story. You know where the story begins with man? It begins in Genesis where God is speaking and creating. Let there be light and let there be life and let there be animals and let there be humanity. And then by Genesis 3, there's already death and sin has come into the world. It didn't take long for a man to mess it up. You've probably seen some of the headlines in the last few weeks that said, where is God? One said, God isn't fixing this. You see, the problem here is not with God. So before we get angry with God, understand we're the ones who messed this up. You look in Genesis, God gave us a paradise. We're the ones who disobey. We continue to disobey. And God has tried to bless us with this. So it's, it's not God's fault. It's our fault. And, and listen, don't, don't really become self-righteous and say, no, it's their fault. It's that group of people. It's their fault. No, it's our fault. You go to, by, by the time you get to Genesis 4, Cain has killed Abel. This is the history we're, we're living with. Then you get into ver, in chapter 6 in verse 11. L listen to what God said. The earth was corrupt before God, and the earth was full of violence. Then, then verse 12, and God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, and for all the flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Then verse 13, God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all this because the earth is full of violence. I'm going to destroy both them and the earth. I want you to understand how much God despises violence. God never designed us to live with violent hearts and violent motives and violent words. Violence has never been our friend. It's always our enemy. Violence is a problem. However, Christians are notoriously violent. You, you look over the last couple thousand years at some of the history and some of the people and some things that have happened. And so before we get too hard on other religions and other people groups, let's pay close attention to how violent Christianity has been. I'll give you one example. In, in England, in Oxford, England, there's a church there. And there's a pulpit there. And, and it's known for th th this man, Thomas Kramer, who preached his last summer sermon before he was drug outside and burned to death. He, he, he wrote the first Anglican book of prayer. He was a holy man. The Catholic Church came in, and they're trying to take over from a religious standpoint. And he just he got up in that pulpit and said, I, I can't go that way. I can't give my heart to something I don't believe. And so after he finished, the Catholics took him outside and burned him up in front of the church. It's a, it's a monument there today. So th these people, these are people doing both things in the name of Jesus and the religion. So before we get too haughty or too proud about our history, we need to be aware of our history. Because in the name of God, in the name of religion, or in, in the name of some flavor of Jesus, there's been people who have done so many violent things. And you know what? In our history, it goes all the way, all the way back to Exodus 1. Exodus 1. See if this rings a bell. In Exodus 1, there's this huge immigration problem in Egypt. The Israelis are out birthing the Egyptians 5 to 1. So before you go crazy about the immigration problem we may have, let's be aware that this is not new to our history. The Egyptians were being outbirthed by the Israelis, and Pharaoh said, well, if I don't do something about this, these people of Israel are going to take over this place. Have you heard that lately in the news? Sure you have. 
If we don't do something about the immigrants, they're going to take over this place. So what did Pharaoh do? He decided to deal with the immigration problem through violence. What did he do? Exodus 1, throw every baby boy born, a brand new born infant, throw it in the Nile River, but let every girl live. So the way to deal with this immigration problem is not through compassion, grace, or godliness. Let's kill them. Let's get rid of them because they're not like us and they're not going to take over us. And listen, that's Exodus 1, not Fox News. That's Exodus 1. So as we read through the Bible, in this story we get to the book of Jonah. And it, it, this city called Nineveh, it's, it's modern-day Marcel, Iraq. And, 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 there, and there's soldiers in our church that probably have, have, have helped liberate this city. It's the most violent city. It's the epic center of violence. And, and it's still being fought over today and contended with because it's a violent place. But in Jonah's time, it was a violent place. And the prophet Jonah is sent to this place by God to go tell these terrorists to repent of your violence. Or, have you noticed how mankind, we keep making the same mistakes? Because they're doing the same thing there today that they did when Jonah was there. And it, to the extreme that when he was there, they literally would take their enemies out in front of everybody and they would skin them alive to intimidate their neighbors. That's called terrorism. We, we, we've seen extremes like that on TV. So that's why God looked at this place and said, hey, I can't tolerate that kind of violence anymore. So he sent his prophet Jonah, better known as the reluctant prophet. He didn't want to go. Remember the story? He got on the wrong boat, going the wrong direction, throw him off the boat. The fish comes, swallows him up. He's in the belly of the fish for three days, spits him out on the shore. He runs to Nineveh, and he, and he preaches and tells these people they better repent. Are. And to Jonah's surprise, they repented. And here's what Jonah did. L listen to the wisdom of the reluctant prophet. God, I told you this was going to happen. It, it's in your Bible. You can read it. I'm not making this up. Jonah said, I knew it, I knew it, and, he, and, he go, and he's pouting, and he goes, he sits under a tree, he's pouting because God is gracious to terrorists. Listen to my question. What happens if some of our terrorists, you know, the ones that are terrorizing us, repent? What happens if they wanted to come and worship God with us? See, that's what happened with Jonah. He went, he preached, they need to repent their sins, they repented. You would think mankind would have learned by now we'd do things differently, we'd get it right. Fast forward in the story and go over to the book of Matthew, and there we have this guy named Herod. And in Matthew 2, verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry and sent forth to put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its districts from two years old and under. So by Matthew 2, Jesus is born. And listen, he's probably at two years old when the wise men come at this point. So he's not at the manger in the cave in the side of the mountain so you can take the magi out of your nativity set. They're, they weren't there for two years. So you, you, you read the story. Mary's at home with Jesus. The magi show up. And, and then Herod realizes he's been outwitted by the magi. He's angry. He goes into a rage. L listen, this is the world's response to problems. This is, the, especially people in power, this is our world's response when, when, when things aren't the way we want them, when, when their power is threatened, the enemy. You know, our enemy is, the, the Bible calls our enemy in, in, the, in the book of Revelation, the beast. 
our enemy is from hell. When his power is threatened, he will always respond with violence. And that's why the people of God, the followers of Jesus, should never respond with violence. Never. When the world systems get threatened, their response is always violence. And that, that's the way our enemies respond, but not the people of God, not the followers of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus went to the cross and he suffered violence. Remember what they said? Hey, Jesus, why don't you call down the angels from heaven to rescue you? Call in the special forces, get rid of this. No, Jesus took it. What a countercultural way to respond to violence. The critics would have said, Jesus, you're going to lose your power. Jesus, you're going to lose your followers. They're going to abandon you. Your movement's going to come to the end. And Jesus responded with, with, with no violence. He said, no, 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 no. My dying, I'm going to gain it all. You're going to lose it. No, I'm going to gain it all. What a way to live. Not trying to protect it and keep it in safe stuff. What if we gave it all away? What if we gave it up? What if we live in a revolutionary kind of way? What if we're not afraid of death, not afraid of dying because our Savior died on a cross in a violent way so we could have life, life eternal? Do you understand that our life does not begin and end here? So where does this start, the violence? Where does the violence start? How does this happen with mankind? It's in the whole story. It's in the lineage. Two points. Here's the first one. Violence begins in our hearts. It begins in our hearts. How does someone decide one day to pick up a gun and to go into a public place and take down innocent lives? How does that happen? It starts in your heart, it moves to your thoughts, and it ends up being your words. Listen to what Proverbs said. Proverbs says in 24.1, do not be envious of evil men. Let me paraphrase that. Do not make heroes out of wicked people. Let me say it another way. You don't negotiate with terrorists, period. That's what it's saying right there. You don't do that. Then it goes on and says, No desire to be with them, for their heart devises violence, and their lips talk of troublemaking. See, if you're that person, if you're that wicked person, I'm not going to hang out with wicked people. If you have violence in your heart, I'm not going to be with you. I'm not your friend. I'll point you to truth, but I won't be your friend. Why? Because the heart plots violence. And where does all that start? It starts then as the plots start as we begin to talk about it. What did Jesus say? He said our mouth always betrays our hearts. So every violent act starts with violent language that started with violent thoughts. And you can look back over the last few years where families and friends have been interviewed after a violent act or a terrorist act, and you can, you, you'll hear common threads of saying, yeah, well, they were talking about this, and yeah, they were on, 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 on the Internet and looking at this, and they were saying that, and they were making little threads, and they were saying all of these things. It's been in their heart, and, and now and it's in their thoughts, and now they're saying it and they're speaking it. It all started with violent thoughts. It turned into violent language. And can I just step aside just a minute and say something to the parents? Okay? Parents, please listen to me. Please make the decision that your kids are not exposed to violent movies or violent video games. You say, well, why, why should I do that, Pastor? Because, listen to me. Listen to me. Because that's the way of the enemy, the beast. He solves problems by being violent. And so we're teaching kids how to be, 
how to solve a problem by being violent. And maybe you're saying, well, I grew up that way and it didn't affect me. Look at our culture today. How we solve problems is being violent. So I'm just saying, maybe you need to look at that. Jesus didn't solve problems by violence. No, he solved problems by serving. He died, but that's the ultimate serving and and by blessing and not cursing. I'll I'll tell you what came to me a few weeks ago, and it really really got to me, and and, and this is more, I guess, just for me personally, but I want to share it with you. You know, jokingly, sometimes we say things that now are not funny, but, you know, we probably have all said, you know, somebody say, well, how did you know that? Well, if I told you, I'd have to kill you, you know? And that's maybe a joke, but it's not funny anymore. I've said this, and I, I can't say it anymore. You know, I've said, you know, well, I'm just going to kill them and tell God they died. That's, that's a joke, but it's not funny. The way we joke around, because if I joke around like that with violence, it means it's becoming familiar. When I'm familiar, I get desensitized to it, and it just becomes familiar language from our culture. Hey, kid, you touch that, I'm going to break your neck. Hey, you do this, and I'm going to do that. The, those things we say flippantly. And I'm not trying to be legalistic, but what I'm saying to us is the last few weeks have made me evaluate how insensitive to the problem of violence we've become, and God despises it. I mean, if I were to say to you, hey, you know, instead of talking about violence, I'm going to talk about, uh, you know, the top sexual sins in America, you know, you you would have a whole different demeanor, but when I tell you I'm going to talk about violent sins, it's real quiet in the room. Why? Because we're insensitive to it. It's just so part of who we are in our culture through our language that we forget this is a problem with God. We can't be violent people and call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ. Those two things do not match up. So my first point was simply it starts in our heart. Here's the second one, and I'll wrap it up. Violence does not solve our problems. Violence does not solve our problems. Now, I want you to listen to me because I'm going to read a paragraph from a person who's very famous. And I want to read this because, and and I'm not trying to make you agree with all the politics and and, and, and the, the different parts of his ideology. And I'm talking about Dr. Martin Luther King. I'm not trying to make you agree with everything that happened in his life. I'm not at all. In fact, I have problems with some of his politics. I have problems with with some of his ideology. But I do think in a lot of ways that he was a prophetic voice. He was the prophetic voice to our country in a time where we needed a prophetic voice. Whether you agree or not about his personal life, his personal politics, I'm not here to debate that with you. You can decide that on your own. But did God use him to be a prophetic voice in the time our country was dealing with with so many racial tensions and problems and issues? Yes, he did. He was a prophetic voice. But I want you to listen to this. I I want to read this to you, and I want you to get past all the personality and all the politics. I want you to hear this. This is not something I'm saying or reading to you because you may not have heard this statement. I'm going to read a couple paragraphs, and and he's talking about this issue of violence. His followers with him are saying, Dr. Martin Luther, it's time to be violent. We need to get their attention by violence. And And here's his response. The ultimate weakness of violence is that it is descending, that it's a descending spiral, forgetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Through violence. Through violence, you may murder the liar, but you cannot murder the lie, nor establish truth. Through violence, you may murder the hater, but you don't murder hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate, and so it goes. Now listen to this. This is powerful. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. That is so powerful. 
Here's what he's saying. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can drive out darkness. Hate can't drive out hate. Only love can drive out hate. Now, I, I know I'm playing with your mind and your emotions, so let me flip it over on another side. You may know a veteran. We have a lot of veterans, and we thank them for what they've done. But you may know a veteran who served in a war. And I challenge you to ask them this question. All the wars that we have fought, have they really solved any of our problems? Well, I mean, if you just look at some of the natural things, well, it's driven back tyranny. We're not Nazis because of one war. Or we liberated a group of people from the strongholds of communism. Or we pushed back evil terrorists that wanted to take over all of Europe with bad, evil uh, ideology. And listen, we understand there are times we have to stand and fight. We understand you have to resist. But we should always mourn when that happens. And I understand the necessity. We have to defend our home. We have to defend our country, our freedom. I understand it. That, that's a whole other sermon. But let me tell you something. I understand there are times, but here's the deal. No one single war has ever solved our big issues. And if you talk to a veteran who has fought in a war, they'll probably will agree with that. Now, it's pushed some things back. It's extinguished some things over time. It's liberated people out of the clutches of strongholds. But it doesn't solve the issue. So what solves the issue? You ready for this? What solves the issue is the arrival of a baby in Bethlehem, Israel. You're saying, really? Yeah. He came ready to solve the problems. Jesus has been and is and will be the answer and the final solution to all of these issues. He's still in control. He's still king. He will solve all of these. You, you read Revelation 21. He'll solve all of this. I have found myself lately in, in a place that I had to find out what, what, what's going on. I find my heart beginning to long and to hope for Jesus. Lord Jesus, come. What causes that kind of hope? What, what, what puts your, your spirit burdened with this? Well, Paul wrote in, eight, in Romans 8, 22, he said, For we know the whole creation groans, and labors with birth pangs together until now. So I started out this talk with listening to Isaiah say, unto us a child is born. And then we looked at Matthew 2 where it says, Jesus was born to us a child. Now Paul is writing, the whole creation now has been groaning as in pains of childbirth. So this is what should be happening. We as believers, we should be groaning and hoping and asking and praying for the king to come. Not, not, not necessarily for the second coming of the king, but to come to our home, to come to our workplace, to come to our community, to come to our country. We, we, we should be groaning and praying and hoping that, that this mess, this broken, messy place that we live in, that Jesus will come and that there will be a renewal and a returning back to him and that, 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 that he, we can listen to what he says and he says, it's not time to shrink back and back off. It's not time to retreat. It's not time to live in fear. It's a time for you to become pregnant with hope by longing and standing as prophets in the world today that, hey, there's a different way. You may try to solve your problems with violence, but, but, but we've come with hope, and we have hope in God. See, you're either consumed with fear or you're pregnant with hope, and that's your choice, and there's no other choice. I mean, if there is something that's burdening you, 
I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know how you feel. I don't know if it just you're just in a place where you want to criticize and complain everything that's going on, or is there a burden in your spirit to say, God, something has to change, and it's not an election. Something has to change. We have to say, God, we hope in you. We believe in you. We're hoping you have a future and a plan. It's not over yet until you say it's over. And we have to have that faith. We can't live in fear. We have to live in hope. So what is it you're hoping for? I told you in the first message of this series that before it was over, we'd come to another table called the Lord's table, and we're going to come to that table today. But as you come to that table, what do you want? You just want another job? You want another promotion? You, 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 you just want something that's a, another house, another car. I mean, and there's nothing wrong with those things, but I'm saying, isn't it really time to just look at this and put a little more weight on this and realize this is a very special moment for us? And God has put in my heart, and I'm, I'm spending emphasis on communion today. I'm spending emphasis on communion uh, on, on Christmas Day. And then the first of the year, the first Wednesday of the year, I'm, we're doing something very special about communion. Why? Because I think until we understand what that is all about, we're going to miss the intimacy of God being in our presence. And without God in our presence, we're going to operate in fear because our culture keeps throwing fear darts at us, and we believe that more than we believe God because we don't know the presence of God sitting at our table. I want hope. I, I don't want to throw in the towel. I want hope based on a future that's a reality that I know is going to happen because the Word says. See, faith is the essence of things hoped for, but things not seen. I can hope for it, but I don't see it yet. Faith is based on the reality that you can't see it yet. Faith is based on hope. Something I know something's going to happen. Why? Because God loves people. And if they'll repent... If they'll repent, if, it, 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 it's time to see the fruit. And if there's ever been a time in our world where there's not a lot of evidence pointing to hope, it's right now. Why? Because people are basing it on circumstances. You, you, you base your hope on things you see or a person. No, 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 no. You have to base your hope on what you cannot see. You have to base it on what you believe the Word of God says. So today as we come to the Lord's table, I want you to come, and there's two things I want you to address because you have two choices. You come to the Lord's table today and you can be fearful or afraid of what's coming next year. Or you can be pregnant with hope and groaning and longing and believing that the King is alive. And the king is coming in my house, at my table, in my life. And the king's coming in my community. And the king's not turned his back on my country. And the king's coming. So we're going to come to the Lord's table because of what Jesus told us and we believe. Now, if you want to stay, you, in the meantime, you can live like a fearful, per, fearful person and not believe what the future has promised. Or you can live like a hopeful person because the Holy Spirit has filled us with faith to believe that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. So today, we're going to come to the Lord's table. And in front of you in your seat back, you'll see there's a cup. This cup has the elements of bread. And juice representing the blood. If you go ahead and take those and take the top layer off and get the bread, and then I'll tell you what we're going to do. I'm asking you to prepare your hearts. 
I believe this is a big moment for us right now. I believe it's a big moment not only to decide how we're going to live next week, Christmas week, but how we're going to go into a new year. Listen, I don't know if you know this or not, but let, let me share this with you. Do you know not one time does Jesus say, be very afraid. Hey, hey, y'all be very afraid. Not one time did he say, oh, I'm sorry for the mess, I'm leaving you, but be very afraid. No, here's what Jesus said. Hey, in this world, you'll have trouble. You'll have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Now live for me. Now worship me. Yeah, you're going to have trouble, but I've overcome. I've got a plan. I'm in control. You just live for me. You worship me. You stay full of hope. I'm coming to the table today, the Lord's table, because I believe that. We know the bread and the cup represent a death, a burial, and a resurrection. And here's, here's what happens. His resurrection says to us, the worst thing imaginable is not the final thing. You know what the disciples thought the worst thing that could happen was the Romans would arrest him and take him outside the city limits and kill him. And they did. That's what happened. But it wasn't the final thing because he came out of the grave three days later. He's a king. He's still alive. He's in our lives. He's in our homes. So I want to pray, and then we're going to take the elements. God, we thank you today that the resurrection proves to all of us that the worst thing is not the final thing. And we come today to celebrate hope. We're not going to give attention to fear. We're going to celebrate hope. We're hopeful. We're people filled with a hope. And you've, com you've promised us. You've made promises to us. And as we come to the Lord's today, table today in Jesus' name, as we take the bread, as we take the cup, that our brokenness and sinfulness, it wasn't the reason for you to leave us. It was actually the reason you came to us. Today, as we take this bread, Lord, we welcome the King into our brokenness. And we thank you for coming into our lives and the world around us. We thank you, Jesus, for coming. Thank you, Jesus, for coming into our brokenness, into our lives. And we thank you. Take the bread. Lord, by taking the cup, we're grateful you didn't leave us to our own devices, but you gave us grace and forgiveness of sins. And Father, by lifting up the cup, we call on the name of the Lord to save us, and we thank you, Jesus, for saving us. We thank you for grace and mercy, and by taking this cup, we receive it today. Take the cup. there where you are without moving I want us to worship through this course
everlasting God. Here's how we reclaim Christmas. Jesus came to the part where he said, it's important that I leave, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And he's going to comfort you and lead you into truth. He's going to tell you things that are to come. And he's not going to leave you alone as an orphan. We reclaim Christmas in our lives by the presence of the king sitting at our table. And with his presence comes peace beyond what we can understand. But we have to have hope. Now I want you to sing this course again and I want you to sing it like you have hope. Come on, sing it like you have hope. We set our hope on you we set our hope on your love. We set our hope on the one who is the everlasting God. You are the everlasting God. You are the everlasting. We set our hope on you. We set our hope on your love. We set our hope on the one who is the everlasting God. You are the everlasting God. Come on, every location, let's sing this out. We set our hope. We set our hope on you. We set our hope on your love. We set our hope on the one everlasting God. You are the everlasting God. You are the everlasting. We set our hope on you. We set our hope on your love. We set our hope on the one who is the everlasting God. Everlasting God.